Well, uh, I, <laughs> um, the slide will, will key in, it's a time change, and I, those who know me, I'm not, I'm not actually good enough at planning anything to line what I was going to talk about this morning up with the time change. Um, it's another great coincidence, uh, God playing a joke, however you want to look at it, um, but, and yeah, the number of times my wife will throw something on a calendar and say, hey, did you see that? And it's, eh, no. Um, she can testify that I, I'm not that good at planning. But uh, as you can see, today we're going to be talking about time. Uh, we're going to be back in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's been a little bit since I've had the opportunity to share with you. Um, last time we were out on the farm, uh, and it was a lot sunnier and warmer than it is today. Um, and, and as we begin talking about time, I'm going to tell you a little bit about one of my favorite TV shows. It might be, um, yeah, it's one of my favorite TV shows, and that is The, the American Office. Um, and, and in this show, if you haven't seen it, it is a mock documentary. And, and essentially what it is, it's all fake, none of it is real, but it is shot to make you believe that this is a documentary. Uh, and, and in this, it follows the lives of a bunch of employees that work for a Pennsylvania paper company. Uh, and if you hear that and think, well, that sounds incredibly boring, uh, that is kind of what is the charm of this show, is nothing really happens. But it follows these employees, and what begins as a show about work turns into a show about family as you grow to care about these characters, care about how much they care for each other. And towards the end of the show, it, in, it, throughout, they do this thing where they'll have a, a thing going on in the background, and they will cut to a worker in the office for an interview. And the interview often lays on this layer of comedy to what's happening behind them. And towards the end of the show, they do this, but they, they quit trying to make it funny, and they, they really pull back and they say, we're going we're gonna to pull on the heartstrings a little bit. And in one of these interviews towards the end of the show, um, a character named Andy says one of my favorite things in the entire show. Um, and they ask him what his experience was like working for the office and, and being on this TV show. And he says, I wish there was a way you knew you had left the good old days before you actually left them. The good old days. And the truth is, each one of us, when we hear the phrase, the good old days, a different part of our lives may come to mind. And we might think back to something different. And if you're like, well, I, I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm in the good old days right now. That's great. <laughs> the reality is, and the reality that the teacher in Ecclesiastes is going to put forth is the good old days, and remember, Ecclesiastes is not always a feel-good book. He wants to remind us this week that the good old days will end. They will come to an end. And so we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning. If you would turn there, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's right after the book of Proverbs. If you're uh, looking for it, sometimes it's a hunt for that one. And as you turn there, I want to briefly remind you what's going on in Ecclesiastes. Again, it's been almost three months since we've, we've been in the book. Uh, and the premise of Ecclesiastes is first, the teacher is exploring this idea of hevel. 
This idea of things that are somewhat fleeting and hard to understand and they're hard to get a grip on and you, you kind of struggle to understand it and right as you get ready to understand it, it's gone like a vapor. And he's looking out on pretty much all things in this life and he arrives over and over and over at the conclusion that it's hevel. It's meaningless. And we hear that and we go, well, that I don't like that. <laughs> and that is because the second thing we have to remember is the teacher is doing a thought experiment. He is looking at things and he's saying, if all that exists is this life that we have under the sun, if that's all there is, what is the purpose? What is the meaning? And as he does that thought experiment, Time and time again, again, he arrives back at its hevel. It's meaningless. It's a vapor. It's fleeting. Third, so far, the teacher has concluding that, concluded that if, if this is all there is, if this life is all there is, and this life under the sun is what we get, this is our shot at making meaning, he has concluded that the whole thing is hevel, Pleasure's hevel, wisdom's hevel, our work is hevel. And that's kind of where we're at. It, it, we're left with, in the end of chapter 2, we're left with kind of a, okay, how long is this book and how long do I have to be in it? It's, it's dour. In chapter 2, the teacher reminds us, as if we needed it, that we all die. And by the end of chapter 2, he concludes that the best shot that we have in this life of having some sort of meaning or pleasure, if this is all there is, is that we enjoy our work, and we enjoy what we eat and we drink, and that's kind of where he lands. And so with all this in mind, in chapter 3, the teacher is going to continue this thought experiment. Life under the sun, what is the meaning of this life? And so Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 1, uh, it begins with a poem. He says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what was planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate a time for war, and a time for peace. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the book of Ecclesiastes and, and the knowledge of the teacher. I pray that as we explore this idea of time this morning, that we would, we would learn something more about you, that we would learn something more about how we can relate to you. And I pray that, that despite... Uh, often the, the tone of Ecclesiastes, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. When I started um, in Ecclesiastes towards the beginning of the year, uh, 
almost too far ahead of where I can really think of ahead of time, Michael Wall approached me, um, as he often does, and, and he said, uh, you know that there's a famous song by the birds um, that is all about this part in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and, and when you get there, you better make sure you talk about it. Um, and I went, okay, Michael. I did what I usually do. I said, okay, Michael, yeah. <laughs> um, and I will, I will confess to you, it was not until last week that I actually went and listened to that song for the first time. Uh, and the song, Turn, 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 by the bird, it's, it's pretty much an exact copy and paste of this, this short poem, um, with one exception. And, and, and I think they've called it Turn, Turn, Turn to make some comment about the nature of time. Um, they leave off a bit. If you, if you don't know, let this be the, the warning to you. They leave off a little bit about war in their song. Um, mostly, I think, to make a comment about anti-war uh, notions that they had. Uh, and maybe while I read that, you had their song in the back of your head. As I think Michael... Um, has been waiting for me to let him have in the back of his head doing this. So, um, but unlike the birds in their song, like they, they take it pretty much copy and paste, but they leave a little bit out. And, and so God's word and the teacher in this, he tells a very, very difficult truth. And that is that as we reflect on time under the sun in this life, there's a time for everything. And you'll notice in this list, there's good and bad. And it's not too hidden. It's pretty obvious. They go together, and he's matching them up. And if we look at them, we have some, some tough truth to swallow. He says there's a time to, to be born and a time to die. That's a tough one. I mean, right out of the gate, he hits us with, like, the polar opposites of, of our existence and experience. Time to be born and a time to die. My son uh, remembers my grandfather primarily as sneaking into his fridge when he was in his assisted living uh, to sneak grapes out of my grandfather's fridge for a snack. That's how my son, that's one of his key memories of my grandfather. And I would go out on a limb to say that my daughter does not remember my grandfather at all. Both of my children were born after my grandmothers had passed. And as the teacher explores time and eternity and life on this earth, the emotional weight of it is that sometimes the time of being born and the time of dying, they don't line up like we want. We don't want them to line up the way they do. It's frustrating. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what's planted. I'm a terrible gardener. Uh, I, every year, Anna endeavors into gardening, and I say, it's yours. And uh, this year, I think I contributed to destroying a zucchini bush with my mower. Um, but people with gardens know this to be true. You can work and work and toil at planting a garden, and there is a time for planting. There are certain crops that you need to plant them at a certain time. And if you don't, it's not going to have as much of a yield. But there's also a harvest time. There is a right time to pluck what has been planted. And the key here is discerning 
what the right time is. It has something to do with frost. That's all I know. <laughs> the teacher says there is a time to kill and a time to heal. And we hear that and we go, pardon me now. I like the healing one much more than I like that other thing. What, do you, what could that possibly, I don't want to be a part of that. But I think the heart of this is, is again, <laughs> caught up in story, is growing up, I had, I had one pet. My parents will tell you I had a goldfish. It is not true. Um, they will provide you video evidence. It is a ping pong ball in a, in a bucket of water. Um, I had one pet, and it was a, a golden lab retriever named Belle. And uh, when my dog was young, because she was intelligent in a different way, she jumped out of the back of our truck while it was going down the road. And she got hit, and it mangled her leg. And I was, I was scared and crying in the back seat of the truck with my dog. And we rushed her to the vet. And she was young, and so they were able to fix her up. And she was fine. She had a little bit of a, a limp. Um, it's ironic uh, that now I do too. But, um, but one day, years and years later, she got sick. And... Her life got poorer and poorer, and we did what so many families have had to do. There's a time to heal, and there's a time when healing won't do any good anymore in this life. He says there's a time to build and a time to break down. Uh, in this life under the sun, buildings don't last. And, and we can go about these big building projects, and, and it can seem to take forever, like whatever they're doing in the Fred Meyer parking lot. It doesn't seem to change, but there's always people working. But we can, the, the reality is, is we can build these really, really great structures. And some of the things that humans have built have been on this earth a long time. But if given enough time, all buildings will fail. I, uh, when I, my, my grandfather worked at this anaconda company, Smelter, it, uh, from what I can understand, uh, growing up, it's, you hear that and you go, oh, yeah. Um, but they refined oil, and they had this giant smokestack that was kind of a... They didn't use it, it was just there. And, and I remember the day that they decided to tear it down, uh, and they exploded the bottom of it, and then it didn't fall. And all the, all the old-timers that used to work at it kind of chuckled to themselves. I think it was, it was a good moment. But um, Time claims all structures. There's a time for laughing and a time for crying. And, and I'll be honest with you, I love the laughing times. I, I gravitate towards humor. Um, it is how I deal with difficult situations. Um, often I get in trouble for that. But we like the laughing times. Especially when we have folks to laugh with. But the teacher reminds us of something very important. There is a time when the jokes have got to stop. And it's a time to mourn. It's a time to cry. In fact, as much as I love to laugh, I think weeping is more important. I really do. In the story of Job, uh, it's the story of a guy who had it all and lost everything. Um, his friends show up to comfort him, to give him someone to weep with and cry with. And the best thing his friends do is sit there and cry with him and be quiet. 
because pretty much as soon as they start talking, it, it becomes less and less helpful. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to weep. There's a time for mourning and a time for dancing. And again, this implies that both will end. <laughs> for in the morning times, one day there will be dancing. And that's good news. <laughs> but if we're in the middle of the dancing times, yes, it's dancing, one day we will be faced with mourning. There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather the stones together. And you might hear that and say, does the teacher have a really cool rock collection? Both my kids have rock collections. It started out as, great, uh, these dirty things from outside are coming into the house for me now. Um, but my son got a rock tumbler, and besides creating the most wild racket in my garage for a month, um, now he has these really cool polished stones. And they both have their little tins and rock collections. That is not what the teacher is doing. He's not saying it's time for us to start a new collection. No. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was this practice when you go out to battle that you gather stones to take with you. And these stones could be used in a number of, of ways. One was to be used as a weapon. You'd either throw them or sling them. We see that with David and Goliath. Um, another way is the act of throwing stone onto farmland and stopping up wells to kind of shut down any, any chances of this being a new habitable place for the enemy once you leave. You can see uh, God's people, and people do this in 2 Kings 3 and 2 Chronicles 26. And though we are not likely, us here, we're not likely going out to, to fight some battle on some foreign land and take a big pocket full of rocks just in case. The idea is this, sometimes... We need to be willing to stop up and put an end to certain things in our life. Sometimes it's time to say, enough is enough. I'm done with it, I'm moving on, I'm never coming back. And sometimes we need to pick those stones up, we need to pile them up, and we need to start fresh. They use stones to destroy, but they also use them to build fences, set up monuments, and, and in some cases, they would build entire structures out of them altogether. Sometimes it's time to start something new. Jump headfirst in on that big project, even if it means you have to clear away the tough stuff first. There's a time for embracing and a time to stop embracing. If you are a hugger... Um, there's a time where you should not do that. I can't stress that enough. Um, and if you're like me and you are not a hugger, there is a time where you need discernment to say, I think a hug might be what this person needs. It can be tough in the times of embracing, especially with the ones we love most, to let go. But the teacher reminds us, in this life under the sun, we often must do so. There's a time to seek for something when it's lost, a time to acknowledge it's lost. Let's move on. I hate losing stuff. It drives me bonkers. My wife watches me descend into chaos as I look for it. But there is a time where you have to move on and say, I'll either find it one day or I never will and I guess I'll just replace it. 
There's a time to keep and a time to let things go, and I think we're really good at keeping and saving and storing and having a lot. But there's a time to let that stuff go, to give, to distribute them. And we often need the practice of letting things go. There's a time to sow. Uh, curiously enough, I took more sewing in school than I took any other elective, so here we are. Um, but sewing garments, yeah. Oh, not gardens. Yeah, I can't sew a garden. Uh, I'm good at, again, I'm good at hitting parts of it with a mower. That's what I've learned. Um, but for many impoverished people, especially in, in the biblical times, the idea of sewing or altering a garment may be the only way that you remain clothed. As you pass clothes from one generation to the next, or, God forbid, if you tear your cloak, you often can't afford a new one. You've got to fix it. And so there's a time where you can just sew that back together, but there is a time where it is torn to the point where you are going to have to alter it, and you're going to have to cut away part of it before you can fix it. There's a time for sewing and a time for tearing, and it's a reminder things don't last and people grow up. There's a time to speak up and a time to be quiet. I want to tell you, often knowing when to keep quiet is far, far more important than knowing what to say. Silence is, is a big tool. It's a powerful thing. God shows up in the, the like still small voice for a reason. In verse 8, the teacher tells us something we may not like to hear. If you haven't already found one you didn't like, he's going to tell us some that are very easy not to like. Uh, and we might even be tempted to hear them and go, mm, no, no, actually, I don't think there should ever be a time for those things. And that is exactly what the birds went ahead and did with their song. They said, nope, no time for war. We don't do that. He begins with a couple of things we like. We love times to love. And we enjoy times where we're able to seek peace with one another even when it's difficult. We get why those t things exist and why we need to have time for them. We can sense the benefit of those. <laughs> our, our Savior calls us to them. And for the Christian, the bulk of our time probably should be wrapped up in showing love and seeking peace. But, we may ask, why in the world would the teacher tell me there is a time for war and a time for hate. War is awful. I don't know too many people when they're faced with war or read about war or have um, been in war, <laughs> look back and say, that was really good. War is bad. And I thought I wasn't supposed to hate anyone. When we read God's word, a couple things become clear. There are things worth fighting for, and there are things worth going to war about, and there are things worth hating in this life. 
Our job, our task, as we continue our journey under the sun, is to learn how to hate the right things and fight for the right things. And in all these, the teacher has been contemplating time. There's, there's a moment for each of these to happen, it seems, as he looks at, at his life. There's a time truly for every season. In the church, you'll hear people say, well, I'm going through a season of growth, and I'm going through a season of, of uh, frustration, and I'm going through a hard season with my family. And that's what the teacher's getting at. We have moments in our life that are going to come and go, and we're going to move on to the next one. And in a system of life under the sun, we might hear that and we'll go, does it ever end? Or am I just stuck in this turning of time? The teacher contemplating this goes on and arrives at a conclusion about who we are and who God is. Verse 9, he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. As, as the teacher reflects on time and eternity and the nature of God and man, he gets to the end, and it builds, and it builds, and it says, also everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil, and it says, this is, and we wait for him to deliver and say hevel. We wait for it. He's done it over and over, but he doesn't do it this time. He breaks his, his pattern. He says, this is God's gift to man. It's not hevel. It is not meaningless. In chapter 2, uh, that was clear back in August, um, I shared about the teacher's reflections on work, and he concluded that the results of our work are often hevel in this life because we can work and work and work, and then the next guy comes along, and he goes, wow, that's really neat, and he walks away, and it all goes to nothing. And if we seek to make meaning in our lives purely from what we do, our work, it is hevel, and in chapter 2, we got to peek at something that was not hevel. It's the idea that, that much of what we do, the results of our work will fade. It will go away. But our enjoyment and the pleasure we can get in our work, God's given that to us. And in the flow of Ecclesiastes, the teacher discusses work, and then he goes on pause and says, let's look at time for a minute, and now he's going to come back to finish out this idea of work and he's trying to look at work in light of eternity, in light of time. And he introduces this with a question that he said already once in chapter 2. He says, what can the worker gain from all of his toil? What gain is there? What do, we have to, what do we have to get from all this? And the teacher says, God has given us something to be busy with. 
God has given us something to be busy with. And we often think of work and we go, why would God give me work to do? I don't want that. Again, what the Bible has to say about work is that it is a very good thing. But God has given us something to be busy with, and as we read, he hints at it. The teacher, for the first time in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, goes outside of, outside of his thought experiment. He says, we're going to step back over here for a minute. What of life not under the sun? And he says, God makes everything beautiful in its time. Everything. We have an eternal God who is good and just and loving and who in a way I may never fully understand makes all things beautiful in their time. All things. If you are living in the times of new birth and planting and healing and building and laughing and dancing and embracing and keeping and mending and loving and making peace, it can sound very reasonable that God makes everything beautiful in its time. Because it's, it's like, yeah, this, I, I can see what God's doing. This feels really good. Yes, God, this is so beautiful, what you're doing here. But if you are in the midst of the times of dying and plucking up and killing and breaking and mourning and casting things away and losing and tearing and spreading yourself thin and hating the right things in the times filled with war, it can be very, very hard to hear, let alone believe, that God makes everything beautiful in its time. That's challenging. The teacher's reflection is this. Yes. Even those things that somehow aren't beautiful, somehow God is going to repurpose or redeem or correct and make them beautiful too. That's a God worth serving. That's a God who does not just look out and say, I'll take this, I'll take the easy stuff over here that makes sense. It's a God who, who takes all of it. Our trouble as much as our, our good days. And so then we're left with this feeling, okay, God makes everything beautiful in its time. How? And also, you said that God had a task for me, and what's that? Uh, and, and if you're like me, you read that and you're thinking, this teacher raises more questions than he gives answers. That's why he's called the teacher. Most good teachers do. But the next conclusion he arrives at is number two, God has put eternity in our hearts. But we, as humans, are finite. We are a part of this life under the sun. And, and we are going to go through these times for everything. We are finite and will never fully comprehend God's ways. One of the things that I tell the young adults, um, it's been a while since I have, but um, I, I tell it to them is, I, it drives me bonkers when a person faced with a difficult spiritual truth or a difficult portion of the Bible or a difficult theological idea looks at it and says, well, we'll ask God when we get there. It drives me bonkers. Because I understand the notion. 
There are some things we're never fully going to understand in this life. But I think so often we use that to say, well, it seems really difficult, and it seems like it's going to be a lot of work, and I might even be scared of what I come out on the other side of this. So I'll just ask God when I get there. I think the nature of faith is in this life, this life under the sun, we explore it. We wrestle with it. Our God is bigger than those ideas. He can handle it. Because as the teacher goes on to say, even though God is beyond us, he's put something within us. He has put eternity in our hearts. That eternity longs for God. That eternity wants to discover God. Okay. What's the task? <laughs> Get to it. Verse 12 and 13 tell us there's nothing better for them than to be joyful, do good, and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. At long last, he concludes, what do we do? Be joyful, do good, and enjoy the things God has given us. And I would argue that you do so in light of that eternity within you, knowing that though you face a time for everything, you're going to face the times of dying just as much as you're going to face the times of, of joy and excitement and dancing. You do so in light of an eternal God who has put something within you that draws you closer to that God. He wants you to explore what he has for you. And as you do so, you will find yourself nearer and nearer the God who put that eternity within you. Our task is to keep, keep exploring. Keep enjoying the good things that God has given us. And discern well what time we are in. Forever is a really long time. I asked, uh, I asked the, the third through sixth graders Wednesday night, I said, we were reading a passage about the last day. And I said, when is the last day? And, and these kids, they're brilliant. Um, they, they think about stuff more so than I think myself as an adult does. And they gave answers such as, well, it's the last day of your life. It's a good answer. And they say, well, it's Jesus talking, so maybe it's when he dies. And then one young man, he's like, I, it's when, like, the end of the world. It's the last day. Forever is an extremely long time. I can't, I can't really comprehend it. We have a lifetime-long window into that Forever. We have life under the sun to explore this. And there's something about us which God, knowing that, says, you know what? I don't want that to end. I want this to extend for all eternity. I want their lifetime under the sun to extend to lifetime above the sun. It's a God worth following. 
And so he has put eternity in our hearts. He has set a longing for him in our hearts. And as Christians, we look out on this in light of Jesus. When, when Ecclesiastes and the teacher was, you know, he had the spiritual direction of God, but he didn't have the name of Jesus on his lips. And so he looked out and he said, God's going to make everything beautiful in its time, and there's something that God wants to make what's going on here and the good things here. He wants to make that last in an even better way for all time. But he didn't understand every part of it. That's why Jesus died. To seek and pursue and save that which has been lost so that way we can enjoy not just life under the sun, but life above the sun, the eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And I want to leave you with with a note here. And it's just a, a recap and a reminder. The teacher does not pronounce this hevel. He has no problem calling things that seem good as meaningless. He has no problem doing that. He's done it plenty of times and will go on to do it plenty more times. But he gets to the end of this and Hevel's nowhere to be found. That's because it's not meaningless. It is the point. The teacher knows that that is beautiful. That God sought us. He can take a dirty, rotten, no good, wicked, debased, war-seeking, slanderous, wretched, unhappy, foul-mouthed, unsatisfied, discontent sinner and make our lives and our eternity beautiful in Jesus'